Hi, you're listening to Offsite, a series of interviews with theatre makers who work in unusual, site-specific, site-responsive and non-traditional spaces. This series was recorded over two weeks in December 2020 and is supported by the Arts Council. I'm Owen Winning and in this episode I'm talking to Tom Lane. joined now by Tom Lane. Uh, Tom Lane is a composer, sound designer and performer living in Dublin. He studied music at Balliol College, uh, Oxford, composition at the Royal Academy of Music in London and composition and experimental music theatre at the Berlin University of the Arts. Tom has been nominated for an Irish Times Theatre Award on seven occasions, most recently Best Soundscape for The Haircut at the Arc Theatre and Best Opera for The Stalls in 2020. He has composed for many site-specific performances, including Harp, A River Cantata, and the House Trilogy for the Cork Opera House. Tom is the inaugural recipient of the Sean O'Reilly PhD Scholarship in Composition for Theatre at University College Cork and a ne- uh, 2016 Next Generation Bursary from the Arts Council of Ireland. Tom, thanks very much for uh, chatting with me. No problem. Thanks very much for inviting me. Um, Tom, what was the first instrument you learned how to play and what age were you? Uh, the first instrument was the violin. I was four years old, which might seem quite young. Um, uh, same for me. But, oh, very good. There you go. Uh, I did the Suzuki method. Did you too? Mm-hmm. Wow, that's yeah. what a coincidence. That is a strange yeah, coincidence, good. yeah. My next one, you know, Consuela, uh, was a teacher. I, I was part of a um, tour to Cork and Dublin sometime in the 90s to, with, with my Suzuki group to see the Cork and Dublin Suzuki group. So we may have oh. actually performed together in like 1993, if you were born. Uh, <laughs> yes, it's, it's, it, it's entirely possible, yeah. This bizarre, great, yeah. small world. And then yeah, I began, so as you know, Suzuki, you start at a young age, for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. It's just what you do. And then I started later then with the piano at like seven or eight. I can't really remember. Good. Um, yeah. um, did you go to see many concerts or plays growing up? Yeah, a lot of concerts, basically. Mm-hmm. I think lots of it was being part of, well, because I, I have two older brothers and they also did violin and then orchestras and things. And um, so was kind of going to see all their concerts when I was growing up. Oh, going to um, see them perform. Yeah, just seeing, yeah, like in school orchestra concerts or like mm-hmm. local youth orchestra things. Um, and so that's like the one side which is kind of obviously not professional concerts, but then would have also gone to, there, there are two concert halls in Bristol called um, the Colston Hall, Colston Hall, which is going to be changed the name because of the controversy about the name. Sure. Um, and then also St. George's Brandon Hill, which is a nice kind of smaller concert venue. And they have great kind of concert programs. Uh, so we used to go used to go to a lot of those. That's like instrumental concerts and singing concerts and all those kind of things and carol concerts at Christmas, all those things. And then plays, 
also very lucky in Bristol to have the Bristol Old Vic, mm. which is quite a sort of well-known theatre. I think it has some kind of claim like the oldest English-speaking theatre in the world that's still in continuous use or something like this. <laughs> um, but I just, yeah, I remember going there a lot to see plays. And the earliest I one I can remember was something to do with The Wind and the Willows. Um, and I looked it up, and according to the internet, um, The Adventures of Mr. Toad, based on The Wind and the Willows, was 1980s, no, 1987 to 88. So I would have been four years old. Wow. So I'm not sure if I actually remember that, but maybe I do. It's possible. Um, could, have, could have happened. I also remember something to do with The Hobbit. There was some kind of Hobbit stage adaptation. Couldn't find a record of that. But I remember the, the scene where all the dwarves and the hobbits are in, are in the barrels floating along a river. And I remember they had some kind of like cloth water effect. And then they were in barrels like bobbing along. That stuck in my, in my mind. That could have been any time. But yeah, I do just got to see a lot of things. Obviously then uh, annual pantos and things. Mm. Um, and then again, like school musicals and school plays all the time, going to see those, my brothers, or like being part of primary school plays. Okay, right. So yeah, yeah. Quite, a, quite a good grounding then. I mean, it's, from my memory, it seems like I was always at some kind of play or show. And I'm not sure what birthday it was. Potentially, well, I think it was primary school. So before the age of 11, as, as, a, as a birthday party. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is my idea or my parents. <laughs> the, the activity was a behind-the-scenes tour of the Bristol Old Vic Theatre. Okay. I mean, uh, my fate was sealed. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so we got I mean, to that- see, like... To yeah. me, that sounds fantastic. Um, I know. <laughs> me now, too. <laughs> but, I don't know. Who, yeah. My parents My parents are very into theatre and music. And things, okay. They love that stuff. Um, but um, it was great. I, it's, I still remember things. We went to see, like, the costume department. There was all the wigs. Um, they went to see, like, they have these kind of ancient preserved seating banks from the 17th, 18th century, a long time ago. They mm. have these cool um, things in the roof. They're like... Um, uh, kind of like a bowling alley in the roof, and yes. apparently they they rolled cannonballs sure, down the it. thunder, the thunder yeah. sound effect. Yeah, and it was recently restored apparently, and they they yeah. used it in the production. But they you know that that stuck in my brain. I remember seeing that, and they talked about it. Mm. And you know, thirty years later, here I am, twenty, uh, <laughs> twenty-five. Uh, so that yeah, a lot of exposure to theatre and music live performances right so did you very lucky to have that did you decide uh that you wanted to become a a professional musician or professional composer at an early age then i no i definitely don't think i did because partly i didn't know anybody who was that as a job i knew like music teachers like Mm. my instrumental teachers which was definitely good I'd, i'd kind of wasn't really interested in teaching, but that I didn't really know anyone who played like in a professional orchestra or was a professional actor or a designer of any kind of that kind of thing. Um, didn't know, didn't know anyone who worked in the arts as a profession really. So mm. I always thought this is not something that is possible to kind of do professionally to earn money to live from. And then also in school, strange, I mean, maybe sensibly, um, things like music teachers and drama teachers, they kind of actively <laughs> Maybe I'm overdoing it, but they kind of actively discouraged us from trying to pursue it professionally. They were, I guess they were very like realistic about the chances and the possibilities of sort of making it. You know, it's pretty slim. And maybe maybe this story you, you, weren't. You good don't enough. want to end up like me, kid, kind of a thing. I mean, maybe. I mean, I guess potentially in music and theatre teaching, 
there could be an element of I don't think this applies to any of my teachers but they may be in general maybe yeah, if you, you become a teacher if you are not professional a professional thing but I don't know for whatever reason it was it was kind of discouraged even to the sense like don't don't bother studying music because it's really not going to help you with, 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 with your career prospects. I, your music teacher told you not to study music. I mean yeah I guess so I mean <laughs> <laughs> maybe they were just like very realistic about my chances i mean <laughs> look at me now mrs mcgrath <laughs> it's, a, it's a cutthroat world out there you know <laughs> so it was straight yeah so strange i definitely i always thought okay I'll, I'll 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 have some kind of normal job and then do something else do, you know do music for fun like mm-hmm. i like i used to do at school and then i guess it just became it, it came to the point when i had to choose what to do i mean i didn't have to go to university but i decided to and i had to choose a subject and then kind of at that point I'd kind of narrowed my options of what I was actually spending time doing and was good mm. at so mm. it, music was kind of the only option left right. I think at one point I considered doing history and I realized history was quite difficult and um <sighs> quite <laughs> wasn't really cut out it was basically a lot of writing essays mm. um so then music was kind of the only <laughs> the, the only option I could do <laughs> really so then I did music at university and then even then I guess well. So at Oxford, there's quite a lot of there's there's, there's a it's a smallish music department, I guess, compared to other departments. But there's lots of people who might do that as an undergraduate degree, but then they're just kind of doing it as a degree, and then they might go on and do like law or I don't right. know, might be t- teaching or something, or they'll mm-hmm. do some marketing job or something. So it's kind of you you, could, you know you're just studying it, just have the experience of it. So even then, there wasn't really that much of a focus on being professional musician also because if you're going to be a professional like performing musician you don't go to university you go to music college where you're like rigorously trained to be a performing uh, person right like you're literally doing scales and stuff yeah it's just it's just hardcore practice on the instrument because mm. it's like it's like you're in like sports college you know you're just training hard for oh, the okay big i see yeah yeah, yeah. Olympics. yeah um but then i guess the turning point was then when i got more into composition like I started doing composition at school when I was about 14 15 as part of like schoolwork and then I got more into it when I was at university because there was like opportunities for composing pieces for instruments and for groups and workshops and things um and then uh three a three-year undergraduate degree flies by you know I was like 20 already and it was like I'm finished in a few months now what am I doing next mm. um so I started at 18 was finished 21 so I'm at the age of 20 and um, I thought, okay, I'm into composition, and then I realized like, you could you could go to music college to study composition, which is pretty cool. You could you could like, you know, be with all these like amazing instrumentalists because I suppose yeah, this kind of idea of music college is this like amazing place where the best instrumentalists and singers in the world are. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think and of it, like fame. Yeah, it's exactly it's like the college to to train you for the big stage, you know, but. Mm-hmm. Again, I was under no illusions ever in my like growing up that I was, for example, a good enough violinist or pianist. I was never like, I didn't practice enough. I didn't have, I knew I didn't have the technical ability and even the commitment. So I knew I, I it, and my teachers, and again, they're saying, you're not going to go to music college. <laughs> That's fine. It just made me work harder. Um, and, but then it's like, okay, I can go there for composition and I can really specialize. And one of the, um, like the kind of composition tutor at the university I was at, um, he, uh, I think, had previously taught at the music college I applied to. 
And he, he, he also said to me, it's very competitive to get in. I, you could try, but I, I really don't think it's maybe <laughs> you're going to make it. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'll do my best. So I worked really hard on like the interview mm. and yeah. I like, I remember we had to like study a particular piece by Stravinsky and they would ask us questions about it in the interview. And this, this is the Royal Academy of Music in London. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay. So I went to like, <clears throat> it being Oxford, one of like the world specialists in Stravinsky was in one of the other colleges. So I like organized an extra like tutorial with him, just went and like, he talked to me about this piece for a few hours. Amazing. So mm. really good. I actually prepared really well for once in my life. And right. then um, sent in like a portfolio and stuff and then did the interview and I was accepted and it was great. <laughs> and um, uh, it was, I was only one of four people in that year for a composition, which was pretty cool. So oh. I felt like, wow, maybe, and that, that was maybe the point when I thought, okay, I've been selected to do this. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe it is something I could do. But then again, throughout the process, they're constantly like telling you you're not good enough. <laughs> it's a real theme. It's the real theme of like musical training. <laughs> oh, God. Maybe it's just, it, I mean, you've, you've seen um, Whiplash, the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's essentially the, the process they use in that, isn't it? Just kind of yeah. wearing people down. Wearing, yeah. To, yeah, break them down to build them back yeah. up again. Um, and I mean, even, yeah. Do, so... So at some point in in the Royal Academy, yeah. you 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 decided that you could actually become a, a composer. Well, then was it? No, because again, I mean, so the stuff, the training we got in the academy, very much for like instrumental concert music, and maybe vocal music and operas and that kind of thing. And the model for that is, you you are commissioned by an ensemble. They mm-hmm. approach you like you 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 somehow establish a reputation that you're a very good composer. Yeah. and you are famous and really good and then you are approached by this orchestra in somewhere and they say we're going to give you a million pounds to write this piece right. <laughs> and we will perform it and this is a huge privilege and you will you will you will spend okay no, it's not a million pounds but some money um you spend like a year or you spend two years doing this because the people i was looking at like for example the the tutors at the college um or other like well-known graduates of the college they they were working in this model and they, they, they spend a long time writing one piece it's performed at a big like premiere then it's gone never heard of again mm. um but for the rest of the time you do something else and that something else is pretty much always um teaching like right. like third level third, but but usually third level education so like you're teaching in a, in a you know university or a college mm-hmm. and then consequently lots of composers then need to do a phd in composition partly as a way of being funded to compose for a while partly and then you have the qualification then you can do the teaching job and then when you have the teaching job it allows you to have an income a regular income and then you can compose separately so like the very highbrow uh very rare opportunities you might get one or two a year and mm-hmm. you it's just kind of like well you can't be a comp- it's very rare to be a professional composer and not be a something else on the side you can't really do that it's like there was no examples. There was a few like celebrity, like really good composers. But even that, like so, in in the UK, a very famous composer called George Benjamin, and he he's like an opera composer, right? And he's like he was the guy writing the things. Even he uh, had a permanent teaching job in King's College London uh, as like the head of composition. Right. So that was his like stable job, and then his composition stuff was I guess like bonuses or something. He did extra. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but then there would have been other people like, you know, like Gerald Barry in Ireland, like 
mm-hmm. he was he was very big and like I remember going to see his operas like what is one opera in English National Opera in like must have been 2006 Jesus mm-hmm. um he would have been a professional composer I thought but then yeah it's just like they're kind of very distant older people and you think there's no way I could ever do that so and this that, that's the model of like writing commission scores for established ensembles mm. that isn't that's partly now i'm doing a little bit more of that but for the first like 10 years of my like professional work hardly did very much of that at all because it takes that time to build it up and to get the reputation um if someone is investing a lot of money in you to commission something they want it to be very good they want to not have to take the risk and they want also there to be a sort of element of like box office draw you know if you're an unknown then people aren't going to come and see your new piece so why would they commission a new piece sure just like with playwrights or but i mean i i take your point there but i would have thought there was a huge amount of other reasons why people would want to commission uh pieces of music you know for either film scores or for adverts yeah or, yeah you know, well you see so, so that is the whole a whole other world of music composition right, right. But that's that's not anything to do with what we studied in right, okay. college. I mean, we did a few small, we did a, we did a film project with Mount View's theatre school, which was, mm-hmm. which was good. That was actually a good experience. And we got to record it in the, in the college. That was good. We did like an, uh, an animation project as well. Um, but that was kind of the uh, extent of any kind of composition that was not for the concert hall or right. like commission, I think, because it's just, it was that kind of college. Like it's a college full of instrumentalists and singers learning to perform on like I guess you call it classical music stage, you know, like mm-hmm. concert halls and like international concert circuit. So that's that's just what you learn. But so you, you never learn really how to compose in. Well, there, there, there's an there's an emphasis on the composing in your own original style, which mm-hmm. is like the holy grail. It's like that's the that's the thing we're all looking for. Like you know, when you write when you write a novel, you don't want to be writing a novel like James Joyce. Sure, exactly. Yeah, you you but, want you want your piece to sound like a Tom yeah, Lane composition, yeah, yeah, yeah. like yeah. That's pretty much the opposite of any commercial composition. Right. Any commercial composition, they pretty much they don't really care. They don't want you to sound. They want it. They want it. They want it to sound like you. They yeah. want it to like evoke. They want it to sound like the raconteurs or something like. And you're yeah, like, well, want, we can't afford to pay for that. But will you just write yeah, something like that's John exactly Williams, the same? Or like okay, yeah, yeah whatever yeah. it is that day that that, that director has listened to and mm-hmm. has on their like playlist. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean. So there's kind of a, a, a deliberate emphasis in kind of formal classical composition training, a deliberate emphasis away from anything that would be have a sort of real practical commercial purpose. And I guess it's almost like it's frowned upon. Like the, the more commercial and practical it is, it's the more it's frowned upon. Mm-hmm. So the, you know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. so it, you know, there's an emphasis on writing obscure, difficult, intellectual, cerebral, original beautiful perfect inaccessible music there's all these like mm. complicated words and then of course the result is that the audiences are fairly small but you know mm. people that do go like absolutely engage with it love it like really know about it but it is a small audience and very specialized audience like with like very highbrow art of any kind you know mm-hmm. and of course it's difficult highbrow you know these kind of terms uh it's more complicated than that and then of course there's lots of things i learned in that time which i can use in more like I don't know, should we say like applied composition or something or practical mm. or, co- or commercial, I guess. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of things about like instrumentation, use use of harmony and use of 
things, but you didn't learn anything like how to record instruments or how right. to use, and maybe it's different now, but I mean, you don't know how to learn how to use like music editing software. Like you, you, don't, mm. you don't have to, you can present scores, but recording and editing, that's someone else's job. That's the recording engineer. You are there to produce a score for a concert. That is your job. Which is hard enough. I mean, that's yeah, which is which is tough, but it, it it's extremely specialized. Yeah. I didn't realize yeah. how how specific yeah. it was to that, this that was, sort of culture. Like, yeah, I yeah. can only speak from my own experience. Like, I mean, potentially, uh, this was this was in two thousand and five to two thousand and seven. Potentially, fifteen years ago, uh, computer technology it, it was more difficult and specialized to use that technology. Um, potentially now everyone studying in these places knows these things. They know how to use Logic or Reaper or some kind of music editing software. Potentially at that time, just the technology wasn't accessible enough. Sure. And also the, the college I went to was probably particularly traditional. And that, yes, that's okay. its, almost its cachet, you know, that's its like yeah. USP that it, it's super like focused on the classical training and the art. And if you went, there's, there's lots of other types of colleges. Like, but for example, in Trinity College, uh, Dublin, there's, there's like a music technology course like music ten creative music technology kind of thing mm -hmm. and then there's like a composition one where you do you write scores and they're separate right yeah you know yeah yeah, yeah. you should you should know both so i had to just learn, learn all that stuff myself and i'm still learning it and i still really don't know a lot <laughs> as much yeah. as people who really specialize in that i guess like anything it's hard to it's hard to be good at everything and specialize in everything yeah, it's it, it, it to get a job. Yeah, there. I mean, that's true. But then there's also kind of the case that, like, as you say, it is something that you should know as part of your primary job. You know, um, yeah. like it's almost not exactly the same. But like, as if you know, imagine if you couldn't write music notation and you had like, you know, yeah, you were taught all all you know everything except writing music notation. You're like, yeah. great, I have all this knowledge, but, then, but I can't communicate it. Exactly. But then I guess. Also, because of the routes people take to that point, some people who are like uh, specialized in more the technology side of things aren't as fluent in in in, in music notation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And music notation is like, I mean, it's not complicated, but it is like pretty like yeah, you have to really spend time. It's just kind of a language to learn, you know. Yeah, and then even just the presentation of it, it's kind of like a graphic design thing. You know, mm -hmm. you spend ages like moving little bits around, making it look right, which is kind of stupid. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> At the point I decided to become a professional composer is hard to is hard to say exactly, but I have been a professional composer since about 2012. Right. In in as in like the majority of the money I earn as mm -hmm. my income comes from composition, and it is it is fairly unusual that people are like that. That is the case. Mm -hmm. In for for my background, people usually people do that other job and then sure. do the composition, but it's because I do what could be termed as like applied composition or like commercial things for theater, dance, yeah. uh, maybe opera, maybe some video work, that kind of thing. And then also the kind of score thing. So I like to spread myself thinly. I was going to say, <laughs> uh, in the, fairness to yourself, you work very hard and you, and you you work very regularly as well. So I think that, that yeah. goes a long way towards that. Um, yeah. I, I, I should ask you something about site-specific yes. theatre because yes. Yes. The, the nature of my research. Mm. Um, so, um, like, so, so you said um, that you became interested in site-specific yes. performance in Berlin. And can you tell me what sort of performances were inspiring you at that point? Um, yeah. How they differed from the work that you'd experienced yeah. in the UK? So on, on some levels, just 
any of the stuff I saw there was was different and exciting. So really, um, as we know, like German theatre is, there's a lot of German theatre. There's a lot of theatres and there's a lot of stuff being made. And Berlin in particular is very like avant-garde and uh, I don't know what the word is, but experimental maybe. But it's kind mm -hmm. of institutionalised experimentalism. It's almost like if it's not experimental, it's not going to be put on. Like you don't go and see a nice period production of a play by a 19th century writer that's very like straight. Mm -hmm. if, if that was put, it'd be like riots if that was on in Berlin. People just right. wouldn't accept it as art. Yeah, that's it. This is that's a bit of a generalization, but it is a bit. It is a bit like that. There's, and it, it's different in smaller places in Germany. Uh, smaller theaters with like different audiences, like older audiences maybe in in, in like smaller cities. Mm. Um, but in Germany, so everything is like, fuck, what is this? Um, so going to see things in like the Gorky Theater and the Schaubühne and the Volkstheater uh, in Berlin, really cool places. I, I was part of, when I went there, um, I joined a youth group, even though I was 23, but it was sort of up to <laughs> 25 years old. It's kind of, kind of viable. Just, um, just in there. Yeah, it, they, we were, everyone was over 18, to be honest. Um, it was in the Gorky Theater, which is kind of a smallish, it's maybe the the fourth biggest, maybe fifth biggest theatre. You know, even that, there's like, I don't know how many theatres in Berlin. There's a lot, you know, mm -hmm. maybe 10, like producing theatres, maybe between five and 10, I'd say. Right. Uh, but yeah, and you've also got like the Berliner Ensemble and stuff, you know, with like Brecht and tradition and all that kind of stuff. But part of this Gorky Theater uh, youth group, and that was cool. And we got to like, we went every week and we went to see lots of their productions and we like engaged with them and we did like, workshops about them we've met the people that was really cool mm. so that was like just general theater stuff and then of course I was like opera stuff as well there's like three opera houses um the um the site-specific stuff uh I think had a real impact on me because I was like involved in it I was part of it right and the reason for this was that um I was studying at the University of the Arts the University of Dekunster or Dekar mm. and the the tutor there, um, there was there's basically two composition tutors and the one I had, this guy called Professor Daniel Ott, um, who's a Swiss composer. And I didn't even really know it so much at the time when I applied. Well, I knew that he did what they called experimentalist musiktheater, so experimental music theater. And that's nothing to do with musical theater. That's right. like a whole other, whole other world. So um, it's basically like composed theater or like treating theatrical elements as composed material mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of like combining the kind of traditional classical scores i've done with more experimental theater techniques mm -hmm. um but then as well as that he also is just like a huge uh, um site-specific theater composer or off-site or whatever i mean he just does stuff in crazy places and then because he was a tutor at the college then he used to do these kind of big projects with the students from the college and then also across like the different departments because they have like a theater department and they have um singing department and instrumental department and art and stuff so a big piece we did was called Zutlicher Autobahn and uh so southerly motorway <laughs> or this motorway in the south or something and it was this piece based on uh short stories by uh Cortazar this, this Argentinian writer who has this kind of magical realism, absurdist, surreal 
stories where sort of like there's one where people get stuck in a traffic jam and then they're just there for the rest of their lives and they they evolve this it just kind of really escalates that it starts off being it's a day then it's like a week and then it's years and people like live and die and are born and they establish this whole society just in this traffic jam so it just like goes out of control and there's one for example where someone goes it's it's a short story he goes to see a play in a theater and then ends up being he's on stage and ends up like shooting someone for real on stage but it's like is it real ah so it's like this kind of stuff so i I think a combination of those two stories potentially (laughs) of like being part of the play and Mm -hmm. being stuck in a traffic jam in, in some kind of like transit location led to this piece where the audience were all in a in a bus like a kind of coach um and that went on a trip all the way around berlin basically to the kind of service stations and like roadside motorway places the places you kind of usually just drive past at like 100 miles an hour and you don't you don't stop and see them or if you're in a service station it's like in and out and then just made this like epic performance journey thing there was like performers like plants in the bus with them of course all those kind of things then there was like lots of people at different spots i we, we i was in like a bus that went around like we kind of got there before the bus and like set up little performances and did stuff and then did like one-on-one performances with people mm. then also things like um taking phone numbers of audience people and uh, beforehand and then phoning them and getting them to like do stuff and stand up and say things so kind of all those kind of things maybe we're a bit more used to knowing well, I'm you, you, you'd see it now but at the, at the time I, I hadn't really counted that stuff before oh, and it was really when was exciting. this like 2005 or 2006? Uh, 2006 yeah I think potentially they'd already done it in 2005 and they redid it or maybe they didn't yeah 2005 to 2007 2006 no, sorry, sorry, is sorry. becoming a real 2000, theme sorry I'm, I'm getting confused I was in London 2005 2007 I was in Berlin 2007 to 2009 so this right, was probably okay. 2008 Right. I can send you a link to it. It was cool. And I think they tried to document it by like filming the perspective of every potential audience member. Cause it was one of those things that was like, you'd end up on a different journey wherever you sat and you'd see a different thing. Mm-hmm. And then they tried to make like an interactive DVD experience of it where you could like choose where you go next. But I think it just spun out of control and it was, you know, there was like millions of iterations. Yeah. And <laughs> so it's, it, again, it's like, it's just like, well, even more so than normal theater, uh, you can't document that stuff because it's you, you have to be there, like mm. you're literally there, and being in a service station, the side of a motorway, and seeing some kind of surreal performance happening, um, you could you could take a film of that. It would become a it could become, it could become something else, but you don't get that feeling of being there. Anyway, so then that that was I guess one of the big uh, influential things that I did, and we did we did a few other. Um, of those kind of site-specific things, he was he. This guy done a lot. He did lots of kind of landscape compositions. So we did things where we would be like, I mean, we did a very cool thing, 2010, where we, it was in this place called Eisenach in Germany, and we had like bikes that had these kind of pre- they were kind of prepared bikes, like a prepared piano, had like um, speakers attached to them, and then they had sound. They sort of made sound effects as they drove, and then we would be like cycling through the landscape. Um, with these bikes making sounds so we were like you know like playing the landscape really cool uh people in like hot air balloons and with trumpets like playing like they would use they they looked at the landscape and then like played it like a score so that if they saw a tree they played like this pattern and if they did this 
and then the, it's you know we launched this um hot air balloon at like dawn seven o'clock in the morning and it took off majestically and then they were playing the trumpets it's incredible stuff with bridges, lots of stuff with bridges uh people playing on bridges really huge huge influence on me yeah, yeah. It's, because it's inspiring because you're just like it doesn't even matter if anyone's there to see it you're there just like it's like a ritual you know just like enacting this strange performance thing in mm. the middle of nowhere in this like amazing well not even amazing landscape but just any landscape you can transform into some kind of stage or some kind of weird site of it is very much like a ritual i guess mm. it's like you think of what happened maybe in stonehenge or in <laughs> in newgrange and that kind of stuff you know yeah. it's things that like you're really embedded in it you spend time uh, in that place and you get to know it and you perform in this part of the land you're kind of one with it and if it rains it rains you know you kind of have weird ponchos and you make it work and, mm. and then i think maybe like five people came to see that thing and it, it was a huge process but it didn't really matter because they were just doing it as a as a as a as a homage homage mm. to the landscape you know yeah yeah um fun. With your uh, first sight specific piece, Abenteuer um, Einrich Tung's house, uh, later revived as Flatpak in Dublin, um, you were aiming to incorporate non-musical elements to achieve a more complete form of performance, according to your thesis. Um, so, <laughs> um, was the uh, was was the staging serving the music to an extent? As in, as in, was it really all about the music? primarily and then everything else in support of that this one is a bit more complicated so i've written out a reply okay which i'm i don't want to read out word for okay. word but it could potentially be like that right you so could refer to it i'm gonna refer to it in many ways <laughs> it was rather than being like a complete form of music it was attempting to be a more complete and integrated form of opera really it was right. kind of opera was the kind of goal of it mm-hmm. um it was maybe a, the goal was to make an opera which incorporated m- more experimental elements. And one of the big parts of that is the way the instruments were used. So in an in traditional op- opera, um, as we see, you know, we have the singers on the stage and the musicians are often in a, in a pit in front of the stage, or sometimes mm-hmm. they'll be, they'll sometimes they'll be on the stage or something, but we kind of accept that they, um, that we accept that the instrumental music is provided by a group of musicians who are not part of the action on stage. Um, very similar to in a film where we hear an instrumental score. We don't see anyone playing it. Sometimes mm. it is played with if we see the person playing it. Um, but generally it's okay. Or you're watching TV, you hear music, you're just saying, okay, that's, that's fine. It's, it's, it's very natural to be able to accept that, isn't it? Mm. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, and it's, it's, it ha- probably has its, it's probably just something fundamental to the way we experience like visual drama that we can put music with it, like ancient, like shadow puppet plays or ancient Greek dramas, that kind of thing. Um, but in, it's also a similar way to say like stage lighting, you know, you, you, you accept that part of the light on stage is provided by lights that you can't see. Mm-hmm. It's not a big deal. It's just like, if it was all just like practical lamps on stage, I'm sure you know more about this than me, sure. then um, you wouldn't have enough light. So that's fine. Exactly, it's yeah. like if everything was provided by the actors on stage playing instruments, it just wouldn't be practical and it would be strange. Mm. <laughs> um, so, uh, 
but I, the thing that I find when I go and see operas that I find the instrumental music very engaging and interesting. Mm. And sometimes I will like watch the band a lot. Like I, I think it is, I think it is dramatic in its own way. Mm. And it's interesting to like play with it. And like traditional operas do this as well. Often they have like on stage bands or they'll have off stage bands where there's like real music happening, you know, like diegetic, like mm. in a film. Um, there's like a marching band comes on and it's like integrated with the orchestral music. But I kind of wanted to make this um, in a like, like as real, real like part of the um, the actual composition of the piece. So, for example, um, in Flatpak, the scene it's called the living room scene because all the scenes are divided by the type of room they're in because it's like an IKEA um, department. Yeah, it's like the displays, mm. uh, the room displays in in, in an IKEA shop. Um, in the living room scene. Uh, living rooms are very handy because often people have pianos in their living rooms. Mm. Pianos are instruments, uh, but they're also kind of furniture. So that's a nice crossover because mm. uh, it's about furniture. It's about instruments singing. So in, in, in the scene in the living room, the pianist is providing the instrumental music for the singer to sing with, but is also like a character. So he's like the pianist playing the piano. Mm. He's kind of, the idea was like he was living with the singer. They were like sharing a flat. Right. And then he's so engaged with his piano practice that he doesn't help building the shelf. It's pretty <laughs> um, but um then but there's always, so he, he he plays his um uh he plays scales, he plays like his kind of kind of sorry, keyboard here. Oh, um, I didn't realize he had a keyboard there. Oh yeah, well, <laughs> always ready to go. Um so he plays his kind of normal scales but then in the music you get uh these kind of overlapping you kind of get overlapping different scales and different keys mm -hmm. and then that's not something you'd ever do in reality because it would sound terrible and it's really hard to do but the point is then so it, it started with this kind of like origin point of um the realism of someone practicing scales in a flat but then very quickly like departs and it extrapolates that and combines things with different things and composes it and makes it like slightly absurd, maybe surreal, but makes it into some interesting piece of music and drama. So it's kind of um, having an element of realism in it, but then instantly kind of turning on its head and playing with it. And like in the bedroom scene, there's a there's an accordionist sitting like in on the bed as part, he's just, they're kind of ignoring him. So it's kind of he's providing the music. But it's almost like acknowledging the absurdity of any opera where there's this like invisible orchestra that's providing this amazing predetermined soundtrack to people's seemingly normal lives. But in the same way as like in a play with a script, there's a script, you know, and mm. it's not real. It's kind of it even it's it might have like some kind of semblance of reality, but it's completely divorced from that. So it's kind of just playing with those ideas and I was just interested in those things at the time like why do we why do we think it's normal to have instrumental music and people singing about stuff it's completely crazy like uh it, like it's absurd to sing something rather than say it but we, even in real life people do it you know <laughs> just like maybe at home they'll be singing to each themselves or to each other for fun but when you when when you have the opportunity to like 
control the different elements in a production, like script, like the lighting, like the music, you can create these like very layered, rich worlds of like music and drama and everything. You, you can put a lot into this short space of time and it's very exciting and fun. <laughs> so that's, I guess, what I was trying to do. So in a way, the music was also like serving, like, you know, like in any opera, it's supposed to serve the, serve the drama, serve mm-hmm. the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the, one of, again, one of the like funny things I did was that any of the, none of the words make sense. They're just like here product names. Right, yeah. but almost but in lots of operas you can't really understand the words and the words aren't sometimes all that important right. it's often a different language mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. you might not know italian if they don't have subtitles or whatever um but you kind of know what's going on like if you watch a foreign language film as well without subtitles you can get a lot from it anyway um so i thought well why why have any words that are understandable and then people sort of read in their own even to the words they read in their own meaning to it they were like, oh yeah, I, I understood that that singer was with this woman. I presume though as well, that just makes it much more accessible, you know, and, and tourable as a, as a idea. You'd like to think so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we did it, in, did, it in Germany, did it in Berlin twice and then in Hamburg once and then we did it in Dublin uh, 2012, mm. which is good. It didn't have another life after yeah. that. Maybe in the future. It, it's quite a mad piece in the way that also the, the first three scenes happen at the same time. So there's right. a lot happening a lot of overlapping stuff and in, not in any really kind of plan it's kind of anarchic a little bit it's just kind of stuff begins and ends together mm-hmm. and whatever happens in the middle is it? <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of chaotic but the idea of that was like the, the premise the the conceit was that um it's like when you're living in a in an apartment block and there's stuff mm-hmm. going on next door all over the place it's kind of influencing your life but you have no control over it and it's just like a cacophony but it's kind of part of your everyday oral world mm. i'm sure you can relate to yeah absolutely um do, do you enjoy the process of collaboration or do you prefer to have more control over a finished piece of work good question um both are nice and both so working alone or working with collaborators uh i think if you do too much of one you miss the other mm-hmm. maybe in both cases Right. Um, I've kind of at this point I've done a, so much working with other people that when I do do stuff on my own like some of the scores I write mm-hmm. I kind of miss actually having something the someone else working with me and then I realise as well that I miss a lot of things I do a lot of I don't know if they're mistakes but I'll kind of miss opportunities for making things better because you know you spend so long working. You don't have an external critical eye. Like, That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or even, even just another creative person bringing yeah. something like saying, like, "Why didn't you do this?" And you're like, "Whoa, I never, literally, never thought of that." Thank God you're here. Um, or, 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 and then also then the very detailed stuff, like when we're on the operas with the, the Cork Opera House operas, work with Lily Ackerman, who's a, who's a librettist. Uh, she writes plays and librettos and things. Uh, and she is very, very, very good at details. And she will go through, I, I, I send, when we're doing this, I would send all the drafts like, as they came, just like of the like vocal lines and the accompaniment uh, with a kind of uh, MIDI version, which is like computer generated, you know, version of the sound, send it to her. She would like listen through, watch, look at the score. She's a writer, not a musician, but she would just absolutely fine tooth comb, just like, you know, bar 62, second beat, 
this word is going to be we can't hear this word or this you, what the emphasis you put on that word makes absolutely no sense and if if actually hadn't been that i would have just completely glossed over that and then it would have got to the performance like oh, really i really can't can't hear what they're saying so as a consequence i think it's hard, it's hard to judge as an outsider i'm not an outsider but i think the, the for example the words and the drama are very clear in those operas because it was working so closely with someone who's really like a playwright mm. um, someone who is used to um using words as like the primary vehicle of expression mm. um, and i partly I, like in flatpack i i can think i think maybe opera sometimes doesn't you don't need to hear all the words there's so much else going on there's the music there's the drama there's the whole set there's everything going on um but if you can get everything really clear it can only be a good thing so it's useful to have that completely outside in a different different way of looking at things as well um i'm i'm more thinking about like the melodies and harmony and stuff she's looking at the clarity of the words and the the kind of dramaturgical journey of the of the actors and the characters and mm. singers, you know, which is if, if you can get everything working really well, it's obviously going to like work much better mm. as a piece of uh, performance. Yeah, makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot of your work. It, on, the, on, the, on the other hand, sometimes yeah. and you're collaborating and then there's too, you get too much, someone trying to control you too much. Mm -hmm. So there's a balance, there's a balance to be found. Yeah. yeah. No, no, I think I think that's that is important to note. Um okay. Um yeah, a lot of your work relies heavily on mobile technology to facilitate performance. Um do you see the technology you use as another form of musical instrument? Um I don't think I don't think I've I have yet used it in that way. I would think of it more as a tool. For delivering the piece and you could you could think of instruments as tools but it would be almost like thinking of actors as tools do you know what i mean yeah there, there's so much more like say an instrument an instrument maybe the instrument itself which i hasten to add would be very disrespectful of course i would never dream of it no but there's obviously you can't people bring so much more mm -hmm. to they're not just there as you're like i mean <laughs> There is the cliche, you know, like the moving props or whatever, and, mm -hmm. um, the speaking props. <laughs> but, you know, instrumentalists and singers and actors, they, they're like individuals with like so much experience and expression and expressive capabilities. You, and you, you, you're almost like providing the beginnings of something to them to, to then they create it. You're just, you're part of the creative thing, but you're really just like one, one part of that thing and then they like take it the rest of the way and then you work with them and stuff. Whereas if you're doing something using the mobile phone, the mobile phone doesn't really give you much back. You know, it's it's there as a kind of way of playing it back. It's kind of like the CD or the record or the, you know, like the 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 notation software. Like the, or the, yeah, the method of delivery. The word processor. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. I mean, then again, it will have an influence. That, that, that any any kind of any any form you use has like a limitation. Um, and it's there's things you can do more easily than other other things. Some things you can't do at all. Some things lend themselves very well to it. So that's going to have an influence on it because if you try and do something which is impossible, you're going to fail. So obviously you want to be successful in some ways. So you'll do things that are that like skewed to work more effectively. And the limitations of um, method of delivery can can influence 
the final outcome of something, but uh, that could also apply to instruments like the range of a specific instrument. You mm -hmm. can't, you can sometimes exceed it, but you usually don't exceed it. So that's going to influence what you do. But then I guess, I guess it's maybe just because instruments are so like highly evolved over thousands of years uh, and they're like crafted by people and these like amazing tools whereas mobile technology is relatively recent and i, I pers just personally i haven't used it to the extent which i would be able to call it an instrument what i what i would like to do is it would be great to be able to extend that and develop it more for example using uh gps uh like like location triggered apps mm -hmm. or i've done a little bit of that and i've looked into ways of doing it it's it's fairly recent technology uh, and it, it, it again it's one of those things that needs like real specialism there are there are ways of doing it with with without as much specialism uh, more sure. recently there are things and that might allow you to do it more creatively and like the the audience maybe to have more agency and choose what happens next and to, to interact with it in a way that could be like playing an instrument and like playing a space mm. but at this point less so yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely, yeah, I agree with you in terms of, you know, the personalities that instrument, musical instruments have, you know, you, you're definitely not going to get that with like a mass produced product or something. But there is a thing, all right, where I'm kind of looking at the just the, the rate of advancement in, say, mobile technology, like if you think back to even in our lifetimes, yeah. what's gone on in, you know, cellular technology and stuff like that. Um, yeah. And like I'm talking to you now on a on a like a MacBook computer that has like more computing power than you know yeah. probably every every computer in the world twenty years ago or something like that. you know I don't yeah. know what the exact thing is but in terms yeah, of yeah. like an exponential curve kind of a way yeah. um, I just kind of wonder is that yeah. a kind of thing where I wonder is it like the difference between like an axe and like in in, in like prehistoric times like a stone axe and a bone flute <laughs> yeah, both like yeah. very they got very different uses mm, they're both mm. very they're both very useful and they're both made by humans but one i don't know or like a cave painting you know sure. it's like they have different functions they're both useful functions and then i guess it's like is, is is it the old thing of like people thinking of art as something that's like not it's like a luxury or it's like an extra thing you do, but it's kind of a, it's a special thing. And that's why artists are special and all this kind of stuff. Uh, whereas, you know, if you're like a laborer or you're, you're like a, between, between like a house painter and a, a visual artist, they're both really useful things, but in really different ways. And they both require different engagement with the things. So is that the difference between like a violin and a iPhone? I think we've gotten too deep. <laughs> never get never get too deep in this, in this no, stuff. I'm, I'm pulling out i'm pulling out tom i've uh, <laughs> um, been watching too much um his dark materials i haven't like, even started it the whole oh. thing about like consciousness and like what is it and like the intention human intention and stuff good check it out okay i will check it out i do enjoy the books um in your PhD thesis, uh, you wrote, uh, situating performances, sorry, quote, situating performances away from theater buildings can free them from the conventions and systems associated with traditional spaces. My ongoing commitment to site-specific performances related to these anti-establishment motivations, uh, end quote. Have you found that your performances attract an audience that are not interested in traditional theater and concert spaces? 
yeah, pretty radical, isn't it? It's what you write afterwards wasn't, you know, you sort of disavow your social radical roots. Yeah, <laughs> I would qualify like, you know, you qualify I mean, it a lot. <laughs> I believe in that a bit, but not too much because that would be a bit excessive, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, the, 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 I, I like to think so. And mm. it's difficult to say. And I have not carried out the like detailed audience um things but yeah. anecdotally which is always mm. the best kind of evidence uh just from like like looking around <clears throat> and meeting people and like I'm, I'm usually there at all the performances right so right. <laughs> I, i've been to all of my own performances pretty much and i can kind of gauge what kind of people and who was there at like outdoor stuff uh, as part of a festival on a nice sunny day in a nice place say in cork city uh, in a nice part of cork city um there are more families there mm. are like younger people um there are people who maybe you might see more often at uh kind of type of like maybe more contemporary performance or experimental performance like mm. more performance than uh contemporary music performance um and maybe that's because it's free maybe uh maybe but maybe that's not a bad thing you know maybe um maybe the price of things is prohibitive and maybe, you know, it's when you do something outside, I think I've put this in the thesis as well. It's not, this is not rocket science. You put it outside. It's hard to contain it because there's no walls. Maybe this is why we built, I mean, obviously to keep the rain off, but you know, if you, if you keep, if you build walls around something, you keep it in and you keep other things out. It's just like basic. So you can control it and you can monetize it more easily. So you can control who comes in and sees and hears your thing. And then obviously it's important to sell tickets for stuff. But if you put it on a bridge in the middle of a city or if you do it in a park or something, um, the sound travels, you can see it from a distance. You put it on a bridge in the middle of Dublin, thousands of people are going to come and see it and you can't do anything about that. that but that's good. That's you do that deliberately. <laughs> you, do, you wouldn't want to do something <laughs> very like private, quiet and like intimate in a place where it, everyone can see it. But I think it's kind of cool that everyone can see it. Yeah. Um, it's it's scary in a way because it's uncontrolled and you can't control who's, you know, you get these passers-by, you get people like shouting at you. <laughs> um, it happens a lot. Um, like was, there was this, we were doing this project with Kirkos earlier this year and there was some uh, sort of drinkers. Uh, there was this like very serious contemporary music performance. They were like 10 meters away drinking, laughing, playing music quite loudly from a device. But that was just the environment. You, the, you, you have to accept that it's like uncontrollable elements, but then you try and you try and control them things. So anyway, sorry, in conclusion, um, I think it does because, well, in a way you can't avoid it being a different one. It's because it's just like everyone who happens to be out and about that day walking past it is going to see it. Even if they just walk by, they're mm. still like participating in it. That doesn't happen a play on the Abbey stage sure. because you might be able to hear the Lewis from outside, but they can't hear you, you know, on the Lewis. But if you, if you did it on the Lewis, everyone on the Lewis at the time would have no choice. Mm -hmm. um, that's it. So you definitely get a different audience. Like for example, harp, which was the big piece on the Samuel Beckett bridge. There was like literally thousands of people there mm. watching it. They were just like, it's hard to know how many, because you can't measure those things. It was just people like 
standing on the thing and lots of them came specifically lots of people maybe were just there anyway and it was a nice day it was nice weather it was a nice evening nice time of year um you don't get thousands of people at uh new music dublin like in the national console like a mm -hmm. contemporary music festival you don't get that numbers of people which is fine like it doesn't not everything has to have thousands of people at it but just by the fact that there are that many people they must have been different people to who go to the um other things mm. i kind of i kind of like that because sometimes even even i who was like i've gone through all these like rigorous educational institutions even i don't want to go to some 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 or all contemporary music concerts uh even if they're of the best quality and very engaging sometimes i want to see something completely different because i, I like more strange performances sometimes mm -hmm. um like in the fringe or something um so if, if if even i am not interested in this very like specific type of performance then how can we expect like everyone else to do that so that's why i like this idea of making it more accessible and democratic and opening it up to everyone I'm going to I'm going to do a little sort of Cormac O'Hara style devil's advocate faux outrage yes. thing. Tom yes. Lane, what gives you the right to impose your contemporary music on yes. passersby? Like, is there is there an arrogance in that? Is there a sort of a, um, you know, oh, here, you should listen to this? Yeah, no, there is definitely. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And then you do you you you. you there are, there are times people actually maybe would complain. Mm. Um, in, in, in reality, practically, we're talking about very short events of like mm. under an hour once happening. So in terms of like the overall time, I guess we did encounter this when we did this piece, Beats, Bells and Bridges in Cork. And one of the pieces, Bells, was with the Shandon Bells. And um, we did it on a Sunday afternoon it happened to be the day this was during this was 2016 so was that the european cup i think ireland did very well in the european cup i think they got to the semi-finals um, anyway it was a big match right. and we we had to wait for the match for the match to finish and it went to extra time and all this stuff we had to wait before we could start rehearsing stuff because um there was a pub next to it and everyone was like roaring the whole time um, <laughs> So that okay. So so well in, in the same way as you know, there's lots of like public impositions of sound already going on. Like even people driving past constantly, yeah, sure. yeah. Um, or people in pubs screaming. But then we were then rehearsing and playing the same thing on the bells over and over again, which is something they do a lot in Shandon anyway. So mm. the residents are kind of well, they're used to it, but they're probably also very annoyed already. So we mm. did get a few complaints. <laughs> so that was a bit of an imposition, but it was only for a couple of hours. You know, we were gone. We were out there then after that. So I guess it is an arrogance in some ways. In the same way as any, I think you have to have, if you're doing anything creative where you're, where you're making something new and creating something original from where there was nothing before, mm -hmm. you've got to have some level of kind of um, arrogance or what's the word? Self-confidence or something mm. that this should exist. If you, if you think, like you might be of the opinion, enough stuff exists in the world already. I don't want to contribute to that. Um, Probably not, gonna, being an artist well, is not the job for you then, if you think that. Potentially, I mean, this could, this could be disputed, but I think there's some, 
I feel like I need to have some element of some, maybe it's like, um, uh, uh, what's the word, extrovert, extra extrovertism. Or just wanting to display something, mm. like a piece of work. Uh, you might want no one ever to see it. That's fine too. Um, but you're, you're kind of, you're creating something in the world and you need some kind of belief in that thing in order to put in the time it takes to create it. Mm. So why not put it outside and make it loud? Yeah. Um, but it is, it is, yeah. But then why not? Why not be arrogant? I mean, people are arrogant about terrible things. Why not be arrogant about something that sounds nice and is, is enjoyable and, and is a lovely thing? You know, pe people are out there with their like motorbikes with deliberately loud uh, exhaust pipes. Uh, it doesn't sound great, but they do it roaring past. I'd rather have a lovely percussion piece. I think a lot of people would too. Yeah, I think so. Um, you uh, you keep on top of compositions in your work, uh, often serving as musical director as well as composer. Um, to what extent do you like to involve, involve yourself in the other fields, um, such as design, direction, choreography? I try not to, because I I know from experience that if someone else from another field involves themselves in my field, it's it's off-putting. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I do. Uh, sometimes I'm asked and I feel bad. Sometimes I'm asked and I will contribute something. But uh, I have to qualify it with that it's not my specialism. And sometimes that can be a benefit, right? Sometimes it's good to have an untrained eye and just like get a kind of initial thing. But then uh, I'm, I'm aware, like, I'm not a very visual person, I think. Um, something and not see the level of detail that's necessary to see for it to, for it to be a useful like view of that thing in the same way that someone might not listen to something and hear the level of detail that I might like to hear so I think it's not it can be not useful for me to contribute to that um, so I'm aware of my limitations and and I'm aware of the kind of uh, like this people have enough to be dealing with if without the composer telling them how to do the lighting design. Okay. And it's, and, I mean, that, that, I, I, don't, I, I would, I don't think I've ever told a lighting designer to like, let's make it a bit brighter there or something, you know, or like it's a bit yellow, you know, something stupid. I think I, I take that it would point. would not be and, useful. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are levels in that where, you know, there's levels where it is actually kind of useful because it might be a simple thing of, Hey, remember that special that you always turn on when the doorbell rings, you forgot to put it in that scene. And, you know, it could be something really, yeah. really technical sure, and basic sure, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But, but I suppose... I probably would be like, oh, that's probably, that was a good reason for that. <laughs> like, I, I just, I'm, not, I'm not up to that, you know. I think... I'm not on, on the same I, level. As really, really with that question, kind of, I was more interested in, say, if you don't have a, you know, a lighting designer or a director or a choreographer and you are the lead artist on a, on a piece, like, at that point then, do you do you decide that you're going to take up that mantle or do you decide to say, okay, well, we're going to make this piece in such a way where it doesn't require that role? Oh yeah, definitely the second. Yeah. Okay. I think if I tried to choreograph something, it would be disaster. Like, uh, not gonna, I mean, like say for example, the pieces with Alex in Cork, mm -hmm. it was just me and him really doing it. Right. And we, yeah, we, okay. We, in some ways we staged it, you know, we, we chose these places and um, 
we didn't have lighting because it was during the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we, d- we decided where, the, where he would be and where the audience would be. So rudimentary staging things. Mm. But it's rudimentary and it's not, it's like you stand there and do this and then listen to it. And then um, sort of as far as you're willing to go. Yeah. And then like very, like it's so like with the operas then, like it's amazing, obviously to on one side, just writing it, having the writer and being able to go into that level of detail in the text, then having a director. So Connor Hanrity, he can come in and he, he, he hasn't been involved in that like detail of thing. He can just like take what you've got and you, you've rehearsed it and you've got it ready. He then puts a whole other life into it. Like it's mm. this incredible, like the, the characterization and the story and the, the way the actors, and then that can enhance the music. Sometimes it influences the music in a bad way, but usually it helps it. Um, and it it, 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 it it brings it to life in a way it's already been brought to life to some extent, but then it kind of even brings this another thing. And then, he, then there'll be other ideas of staging, like what if the, it's over there and over here, and then, you know, it's all coming together. And of course you're working together and you might say, oh, maybe it's difficult if the percussionist is that far away from the singer, uh, musically it's hard to do. Okay, so that's like, we'll have to find a compromise. Mm-hmm. But, but generally you just gotta like trust then that someone does a good thing with it because you've got to see, you know, you, you can't see the wood for the trees. You know, you get, I'll get, I'll get like bogged down in like what instruments playing what notes and bar 62. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've got to be able to see the whole thing as an audience would from their perspective and, and, and as, a, as an overall work, mm. which is hopefully what the director's job is, yeah. if it's anything, is to see everything. Um, did Connor direct all three of the house trilogy? Yes, and harp. And harp as and well. And flatback. And flatback. So great, yeah. um, great relationship. Yeah. With and him, Lily yeah. actually wrote the words for flatback too. So, and sorry, not for flatback, for harp. Right. So okay. He, we've worked on like four pieces now, mm. and with Connor, five. Yeah. Um, five can Can you tell me a bit about the the house trilogy? Um, I I was saying there, uh, one of my other interviewees. I I didn't see the performance, but I did. Uh, cross it. paths with you. No, I crossed paths with you in the uh, when we were we were getting a show out and you were coming in. Um, this last year, yeah, I think, yeah, it would have been, wasn't it? It was, I was coming out with Junk Ensemble and I think yeah, you were yeah, coming yeah. in with the stalls. I was talking yeah, to Maura yeah. about it, yeah, um, and just how, how I was very interested in seeing it, but I had to go home. Um, yeah, that's I'll send you yeah. a YouTube link. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Good. Um, but yeah, t- t- tell me a bit about it. I, I was lucky enough not to be. I, I, I that was some technical achievement, even just to put those two shows back to back in there. Mm. I was lucky enough not to be involved in that. Uh, that's why we have talented producers and stage managers and things. I, I was just like, oh, different world. Um, tell me about it. So, how did it begin? Uh, Cork Opera House co-funded my PhD scholarship, mm-hmm. which was nice, um, and. I guess that it started when Mary Hickson was the CEO of um, the artistic director of Corporate House. And then uh, Eileen Gleason took over towards the end of it. And then they funded for three years. So by the time I had finished my, finished those three years and it was still kind of going on, it was nearly finished. Eileen Gleason had taken over and we re- we kind of had a meeting. We realized, okay, they've, they've co-funded it. There was some ideas of doing some collaboration. We did a little bit on a very small, like flash mob piece, which is part of my PhD portfolio. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a very small piece. It was like, this was 2013. And so by 2017, they'd finished the funding and it was kind of like, well, it'd be nice to do something together considering we've, we've yeah. been, we've been doing this together. And, yeah. 
<laughs> not really get not getting money's worth, but you know, to to, to have some kind of fruit of this labor sure, in yeah. a way, if, yeah. if, if, if you will. Um, and uh, Cork Opera House is an instant, like an iconic building mm-hmm. in the great city of Cork, as you know, the true capital. Um, and uh, the Toyota sales room, exactly. <laughs> the opera has been like even the building itself has been, you know, it's like burnt down, it's been rebuilt, and then they have this foyer and mm-hmm. they're very proud of the foyer because it's it was like big it's like a big thing on the front of the theater and it's got mm-hmm. these like three floors there's a lot of space there's like two bars there's a cafe um it's, it's almost a performance space in some ways uh, even at like normal times so eileen wanted to do something in that foyer and use it because it's there and also i guess it's it's less risky than like programming something for the main stage for your first show in Cold Opera House. But then I, I, I had some ideas like kind of based on more kind of abstract stuff like I'd done with Alex. I think mm-hmm. it was in 2016 was when she asked me about it, uh, which is when I'd just done the Beats, Bells, Bridges with the more kind of abstract things where it's like spatial, but you know, like the bells are playing a melody, the percussion is playing a melody. It's kind of, it's more abstract and instrumental and that kind of thing. But I happened to mention it to my friend Lily Ackerman and she was at the time very into doing kind of spatialized theater performances where um, you might see something from a distance, but you're, um, it, it, it's stories, it's characters, it's people. So she thought, why not do it in the foyer, like an opera in the foyer, like with actual characters? Yes. So then she went away and wrote this crazy libretto about two hoovers who fall in love. And then there's a floor polisher who swoops in and like saves the day or something uh, as the kind of God. And yeah, we just kind of put it together and and made it work. And then like, so that was front of house. That was good. Okay, so what's next? We can't just put it on the stage. That'd be a bit of a cop out. Backsta- backstage, let's do backstage. So we, they, we, they very quickly produced backstage in 2018. And then- hey. So, I mean, was, was yeah. there ever, was, sorry to interrupt you, Matt. No, no, please, please, please. <laughs> But I mean, was there, there was no kind of sense to go, okay, well, the thing in the foyer works. So, you know, we're, we're, next time we'll put you in the half moon and then the next time we'll put you on the main stage and, you know, uh, maybe an way. element of that. Maybe an element. I mean, that's kind of just like programming, I guess. Um, um, it could be an element of that. I mean, it, also, yeah, we had to pro- you had to kind of work around what was possible. But it was a backstage, there was actually nothing on the main stage then um, when we did that. And that was good because at the end, there, we're kind of standing at what was the half moon, that kind of scene dock area. Mm-hmm. And then they walk on to stage as if they're going on to an opera at the end. Um, and that was... They couldn't have done that if there was like a big set. But sure. then... So we weren't really on the stage, but we were using an empty stage. Mm. But I guess I guess there is something like that, but it kind of, and even as a journey, it makes sense that you start the front of house, you know, like not inside, and then you go to the backstage, which is kind of still like not on the stage. And then finally you're kind of inside, yeah, you're in the theater um, and the audience is on the stage uh, in front of the stage and the singers are the, the audience. But it's the, I, I guess it became then, the idea of doing a piece in all the spaces in the theatre that aren't the stage. Yeah. So, which, which I should say, I think is much more interesting than, than you know. I mean, it's inherently thing. it's different, isn't it? So it's 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 yeah. ori- ori- automatically original. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was fun, and then doing it in the places, in the actual space. You know, you could you could stage all of those anywhere on a stage 
you'd have to build a set of a front of house. Sure. Yeah. Which it could be interesting. And how it makes a lot of challenges with like audience numbers and putting people. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna ask like how much. Obviously, the um, the the amount of the audience, you know, where you put your instruments has a huge sonic implications, you know, for for the piece. Like, did did was that in your mind as you were composing it? Like where instruments would be or was that something you could only find out once you kind of got into rehearsals uh, a bit of both like for example the beginning in front of house is just one soprano and a clarinet and that's very mobile and very flexible and we had a great clarinetist and she was able to like memorize the music she could be anywhere she could be like walking around you know and she did she kind of came down the stairs and that's cool yeah. singers are very mobile when you start having percussion instruments then you get a bit more rooted but then you have to then bear in mind so then for example I knew that one scene was going to be on one floor of the opera house and another scene was going to be on another completely separate floor, okay. which is a long way. Yeah. So then just automatically say, right, if I have one percussion instrument, one large percussion instrument in this one scene, I can't have it in the other scene mm. and vice versa. Mm. So because it's like a big yoke that you can't move. Yeah. But you can move, but it takes a lot of time. So if you want a smooth transition, you've got to leave that there and go. But then that's actually, it. See, that seems fairly... Um, that makes sense to me because it's like the sound of the vibraphone is associated with that scene and in mm. that room, mm-hmm. leave it behind. We're moving on to the next thing. And I was speaking to Lee recently and I don't know why, but I'm somehow the idea when I think of site specific performances and theater and things, I'm always drawn to movement of like moving audiences around, keeping them moving, keeping them flowing. Mm-hmm. Like in flat packs was that and all these operas and that, that kind of thing. I've, I've, maybe it's just, I don't like being rooted and static to one spot. I don't know, maybe in, in, when you're in a space that isn't designed for sitting and watching, you, you, you feel like you need to be kind of transiting and moving through it. But I'm some, something about it just appeals to me, keeping it flowing, keeping it mobile, uh, keeping the story going, keeping the music going, keeping everything in a kind of sense of onward, forward movement. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah. I don't know why. Me too. No, it, it seems to make totally sense. Agree. It makes sense to me. Yeah, uh, it just seems uh, a natural thing. I was just thinking of um, when you were you were talking about the the, the possible limitation of, of not uh, being able to move this large percussion piece. You know, I was wondering, um, have you seen uh, David Byrne's American Utopia tour? No, with the with the, they are moving this around is, the stage. This time. is where he is. He's divided the drum kit into six percussionists, and they are you know strapped to their chest, and yeah. they are doing a full choreographed yeah. piece. Well, for I've each seen like show. a trailer, but yeah, that's amazing. I, I, I mean, I highly recommend it. But in terms of, um, like I I love, you know, working within the limitations of site specific theater as well. Yeah. Um, but there are also kind of things where you go, and I totally agree about the movement as well. It's like, but there, you know. There are so many, uh, once you kind of get into that, once you get into like a, an offsite space, there are just so many mm. creative ways around. Uh, yeah. Now, I mean, look, it helps if you've got a huge budget as well, obviously. Like, Yeah, there's a lot of, even just like, you, you, you know, also when you do something site specific, offsite, different place, um, you realize how, how useful theaters are in a lot of ways. <laughs> everyone can see and hear yeah relatively well i mean even even then in theaters there's sightline issues right and there's mm-hmm. some seats are a lot better than others and there's the speakers and you can't see stuff but pretty much you can get a lot of people in, in 
easier times. You get a lot of people in the same space seeing the same thing. Whereas if you're doing it in in a site specific, you might get 20 people and everyone's like, can't really see. Oh, yeah. I wish those people were like on some kind of ranked ranked seating thing. That'd be really <laughs> or like, could we sit? Could we have a chair that can fold down and then you can get up and you can leave when you need to? <laughs> we've, we've thought of this. They're called theatres. They're really, they've, they've been, we've spent a lot of time designing them. <laughs> so in a way you kind of have to like reinvent the wheel every time, which is, which is cool. Mm. It's not appropriate for everything. And it's very time consuming and labor intensive. Theatre, you literally can get in in a day, do your show and be gone that evening. Yeah, that is true. Fantastic. So, I don't, I, I feel like I haven't asked enough people about the bad side of offsite theatre. I'm always asking them what they like about it. But, uh, the, the rain. Yeah. Let's start with the I rain. Know, everyone says the rain. Yeah. Yeah. Let's start with the rain and then let's go on to <laughs> sight lines and passes by trunks and you know general traffic noise everything pretty much anything that is a problem in everyday life is a problem for a site specific theater but he can also harness that you know you can yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can turn it to your advantage you can you can give that drunk a part in your play and they will mm. they will they will be a star well i was talking to to donald gallagher um about putting on the big chapel you know and um, big Chapel X. The big yeah. Chapel X, but but I just called it the Big Chapel, and he didn't correct me. Um, and he was talking about a kid who was giving them grief as they were rehearsing outdoors, and he went down and uh, opened the gate and invited him in and gave him a job as head of security, and him and his two little friends became great cool. helpers on the show. Yeah, um, of course, yeah. I think. I mean, I it's 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 the unknown thing that people are like, you know. So if if you if you if you're doing some kind of weird performance thing and it's come out of nowhere and that person the, the passes by, people who live there have no context for it, and you suddenly do this thing, they're gonna they're gonna want to interact with it, but they don't understand it. So it's gonna be like, it's not gonna be a positive interaction generally. Mm. But there's in, there's an interest. It is an interest in it. So yeah, if you can if you can really that's the way to do that. That's the that's the correct way. Yeah, uh, he, he said, you know, opening the gate as opposed to yeah. closing the gate. And I think it's a nice way of looking at it. I mean, Theatre Club would do that in, in, in non-off-site things as well. I mean, they would yeah. work with communities and they... But, but I mean, like, I suppose our, our main off-site show would have been, although it was, it did end up being in a, a theatre in the end, but I suppose the Moy Ross project, you know, was a thing where we were going asking people to tell their own stories in their own locality and, and it necessitated a huge amount of, um, you know, being very open hearted with people and, and yeah. um, trying to respectfully um, ask them to, to tell their stories, you know, um, and, and they were great. They really, they were really welcoming. And the more, the more people who came on board with it, the more they would, uh, the more they would get other people involved. Um, in your own research, you've identified a sort of problem around the language we use to describe offsite performance with people using phrases such as site-specific, site-sympathetic, site-responsive. There seem to be a number of overlapping definitions, regional variations. Are you any closer to untying this knot? No. <laughs> okay. No, you... no I'd make... <laughs> basically I'm not, because I think they're all really useful and they all mean different things. and I. I, but then it, it's only useful when it's when you need something 
to be described in words in that way. Okay. So like my stuff could be like off-site specific, responsive, sympathetic site piece. It, mm -hmm. it's, all, it's, it's a bit of everything in, in some of the things I do. But then I just associate it with being site specific because it's specific to that site. It's mm -hmm. also responsive to it. And it is also not in a theater space. So it's off-site. And it's also sympathetic, hopefully, in some ways, not in every way, to the place. But I'm not any closer to knowing what's the best thing to use at all the times. I just yeah. say psychic performance. I feel like it, with many other linguistic things, it's just you just ask the other person that you're talking to, how do you like to refer to your work? Or you you yeah. say, how do, how do you refer to my work or something like that, you know? Yeah. And, and then you're kind of both on the same page. I don't think there's yeah. any really offense can be taken or given in it. Um, do you have a preference as to whether your compositions are experienced live or as digital recordings? It's whatever form you created it in. If you make a piece of live theatre, it's better live. Mm -hmm. If you like, make it to be experienced um, digitally, that's the way to do it. You know. Okay. So, in if it's if it's made live, hundred percent live is better every time. Like, so, but then again, <laughs> then again, for example, some of my pieces are like essentially pre-recorded tracks, like hidden currents or stream of consciousness. Right? Mm -hmm. These are like tracks you listen to in a specific place but there's something live i think there's an element of liveness about like the process of going to a specific place preparing to go choosing to do it going there pressing play the actual stuff itself is pre-recorded there's no like element of like risk or like points in it which hopefully in a professional theater production there isn't either hopefully it's going to be like the same night after night pretty much within a given mm -hmm. parameters but it's it's the pro your experience of it is live if you know what i mean it's, it's somehow more live by being outside than if you were like sitting on your sofa watching TV. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I was, okay. That's great. I was going to say, I was going to make a stupid point about like, no, you know, do. never mind being, you know, if, if Nirvana played never mind live, could it be better than the, the recording, the CD? But I think that's, that's going down a whole, that's just a I mean, trap they, question. I don't think they could because one of them's dead. That's a good point. Okay. Um, do you? Oh, sorry. To to what extent are the sonic limitations of personal headphones a limiting factor in composition for downloadable pieces? Are you concerned that some of the nuance is lost if the listener has substandard headphones? Yes, I am concerned, and it is an issue, and it's okay. it's 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 a lot to a large extent. However, this is I'm not the first person to encounter this mastering is a very important thing and it's like a huge skill and art form in itself that you know for since the beginning of recorded music uh every recording needs to like work on as many types of speaker as possible mm. like gramophones you know and all mm -hmm. that. so there's people dedicated to making that work um experts in mastering and it's a whole lot I've, I've like dabbled with it a little bit and i've tried doing it on different headphones and that kind of thing um and on different speakers and it's it's incredible how different it sounds and how like the months of work you put into something can sound awful suddenly mm -hmm. on just like seemingly okay headphones. So I, 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 I it, it's because technology is so cheap and available. It seems easy to use. It's got this like illusion of, Oh, it's fine. Just throw a few things together and it'll sound great. It might mm -hmm. sound great to you now, but like any good studio recording engineer will know that it's a lot more complicated than that. It's, mm -hmm. it's they've, they've spent their whole, I spent my whole life learning to write, notes for a violin 
they spend their whole life learning how to master something so it sounds perfect on everyone's radio car stereo everything um so it'd be great to have like a little studio of experts i can just like work with but in reality it's you know budget limitations and everything you've just got to do it all yourself sure and i presume it's a horrible situation then as well where you've sent this off you don't know what people are using to listen to it they don't know that it doesn't sound like what you wanted it to you know yeah, and yeah. they're coming away from that experience going like mm, you know but whereas yeah, they just yeah. didn't hear all the the fidelity that you'd put into it i mean just you could, to some extent, you could say like everyone's ears are different, and like everyone's experience. Even if you're listening in the same place at the same time, mm. the same, you can have the same. But that is a, that is the beauty of a theatre that mm. you can control that. Like if you're doing one piece for one theatre, you can mm. like spend ages for getting the sound right and like balancing it all. Even then, different seats sound very very different. Even then, sure. you'd be like be like a sweet spot, and then the guy on the side is just a terrible experience. Mm. So it's it's always difficult, and it's just recorded music is like very very complicated it's it's, mm-hmm. it's it's seems it seems simple but it's not uh one of the most rapidly upcoming sites of performance this year is the internet um how does the move to streaming performance affect your work i've heard of this place the internet we're on I've it right it's now interesting it's good uh i had some old performances streamed mm-hmm. and um they were very it was very unsatisfying okay um because they weren't intended to be viewed like that Mm. and then it's it's a bit deflating like it's or it's like listening to your own voice recorded it's not like you think it is mm-hmm. um stuff that's created for the internet is good because that's what it was made for mm-hmm. like dead centers to be a machine yes and currently showing all over the world probably or even um the encounter complicite which was which was a live theater show but because like it was a headphone based show. Yeah, I saw that live yeah, I mean, and then I watched yeah. the streaming and I thought it it did remarkably well. Like, yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's got to be because of like the medium it's based on. It's got to be. Mm. I mean, and whereas, you know, like, but, it, you know, if, if like lots of the streams from the National Theatre in London are very good because they, they, they treat it like a piece of TV, like the mm. TV theatre, and they've got lots of cameras and it's very well filmed, very well edited. That's the way to do it. If you have one fixed camera at the back of the thing, we all know this. It's just obvious. Like it's not going to mm. come across because you're not working with the medium. It's mm. like you've made something to be one thing, and then you completely bypass all of the work you've done to make something work effectively for its format medium, and you just bring in something else and like see it from the other side. Like, oh, it doesn't look very good. I wonder why this is. Can't even hear what they're saying. Mm. It's just it's like basic, isn't it? I mean, make it for make a piece of TV you make it well and you make it for that thing make a piece mm-hmm. of theater you make it well for that thing try and do both you could you could do it it's just difficult okay um so it, it's not fun but <laughs> do you still like to perform in your own work i do sometimes however it is difficult because then you cannot um you cannot you don't know what it's like from outside sure yeah but uh, in the stalls i did play and the back and backstage i did play a bit of viola Mm-hmm. Probably a budget consideration. <laughs> Didn't have to pay myself. Sure. Um, but no, it's it's fun to do it. But then also, I know that like there's better people. Um, as my as my teachers have been telling me since I was very young, uh, <laughs> there are better people who are better than me. So I should give them the job. But well, sometimes I do. People should give them. you more money then, so that you could. I mean, that's what I'm always them. saying. <laughs> <laughs> to everyone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that's good, though. I'm I'm glad that like it's not 
it's not for like a, a thing that you never actually wanted to perform. You do enjoy performing the music. It's it's no, I do. Yeah, it's, it's I more mean, that you'd prefer to be outside, being able to have a bigger yeah. overview. I yeah. mean, essentially, I'm a little bit of a show off sometimes as well. Right. Yeah. Um, I just like to be able to show off something I know I'm very good at. Mm. Um, and uh, sometimes I know that, like, if I was singing in my own musical, it'd be okay. But there's someone who can definitely do it a lot better. So I'd right. probably look a bit of a fool doing it myself. So I'm better at spending time getting that melody right getting that home I can know I could do that very well hand it to someone else who will really make it really good mm. I just just keep out of the way of it myself um Tom thanks a million for your time and um just one one last question like has the COVID-19 restrictions given you any inspiration towards what your next artistic experiments will be I I think the inspiration has been walking which has already mm -hmm. already been a part of a thing I do mm -hmm. I think walking anywhere is very interesting particularly in cities because that's there's so much going on in a in a relatively short space you know it's flaneurism which i talked about in my phd as well flaneurism you know like walking around a city and treating the city as some kind of stage that you're looking at and kind of assembling it yourself and choosing where to walk it's just endlessly fascinating and especially when there's nothing else to do it's it's very very big thing and i've already done a bit of that in my work I feel like I'd like I would like to engage with that more and um that's definitely something that well it's definitely an, an avenue that can be explored more now compared to other avenues like in closed theater spaces mm. but it's also it's just something very interesting and it's related to that idea of movement again it's the idea of combining movement and stories and music and the passage of time and combining it with actual places and the experience of those places it's very rich and I found it fascinating. And I think there's a lot of possibilities and I would like to explore that. Will I? I don't know if I will in the short term, but I think I, I would like to, yes. Okay. Well, I hope you get a chance to. Um, Tom, thank you so much. Uh, it's been no fantastic chatting to you. And uh, yeah, I look forward to talking to you again. Absolute pleasure. So thanks again to Tom for agreeing to do the interview. Um, Thanks as well to the Arts Council for funding this project and uh, thanks as well to astronaut Mike Dexter who composed the theme tune. On the next episode I'll be speaking to stage manager and production manager Quiva Regan 